This is Smarter Cars, a podcast about autonomous vehicles. This is the finish line. The Stanford Racing Team has made its way into the history books. But the most important thing for me is, uh, it actually doesn't matter who comes first. It matters that we as a, as a community achieve it. Early in the technology, uh, a thousand flowers should bloom. Welcome back to season two of Smarter Cars. This is your host, Michelle Kairouz. Today we're talking with Sam Anthony, the CTO and co-founder of Perceptive Automata, a company making software that helps autonomous vehicles understand human behavior. Sam, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Great. Can you start by telling us what Perceptive Automata does and what problem you're trying to solve? Sure. So Perceptive Automata is building a module for self-driving cars and for advanced driver assist systems that helps uh, vehicles understand people out in the world. So a pedestrian, are they waiting to cross the street or are they waiting for a bus? A cyclist, uh, do they expect you to yield to them? Uh, another car, you're making an unprotected left turn, are they going to let you go or, or are they oblivious? So we build a module that gives self-driving vehicles and advanced drivers assist those kinds of insights and it gives them gives them those kinds of insights uh, in the way that a, a human would make those judgments. So a, a, a guess about what's in the person's head that's, that's as behaviorally relevant as what we do as people. It, it seems like you're trying to help autonomous vehicles understand humans and their intentions. Um, why is this such a hard problem for autonomous vehicles? You know, traditionally, the way that uh, roboticists think about the world, the way that computer vision thinks about the world, is there's a, there's a ground truth out there. And what you're trying to do is recover the ground truth. So, you know, this thing in front of me is a tree. This thing in front of me is a person. This person is moving at, at you know, a half a meter per, per time interval. If you frame the world that way, the question that we're answering seems impossible because what we're, we are trying to get at is, is locked away in people's heads, right? Like, does somebody want to cross the road? Well, only they know that. <laughs> but, <laughs> right? I mean, right. It's, it's unless you have a telepathy ray. And I don't think I, we may have a competitor with a telepathy ray, but I haven't heard about it. So, <laughs> so <laughs> but as humans, we can do this, right? So when we are, when we're driving down the street, if we see someone, even though, you know, we can't know for sure that they're waiting across the road, well, they want us to know we, it's behaviorally relevant information. We know how to kind of make a, an estimate of that. That's a, that's a, uh, the right estimate to, to pilot the vehicle. In order to build that into an automated system, what you need is a uh, really deep ability to understand and model how humans look at the world. So you can't do this using the standard techniques of uh, computer vision or of, of, of robotics where you, you know, draw a box around the person and then figure out which way that box is going and then make inferences from there, you really need to be able to look at how someone uh, uh, is presenting themselves, their appearance, these, these very subtle nonlinear cues, like whether they have tension in their shoulders, uh, whether they're clutching their, their, their bag they're carrying just a little bit tighter, whether they have a quizzical expression. So you, you need to be able to pick that stuff up and use that in the same way that, that humans do to be able to make judgments that are relevant to motion planning this kind of way. Yeah, it's funny. They, you know, people always say that things that are hard for robots are easy for humans. You know, when the robot apocalypse happens, we should just shut the door because, you know, robots have trouble opening doors. <laughs> is this yeah. kind of the fundamental problem here? It exactly is. Yeah. So, so the reason that this is, there's such a gap is that, that, that this is part of the human cognitive toolkit that's really kind of central like it's one of the most uh important parts of what makes our brain different from the brains of of, of other animals it's something that we've uh, you know looking at another human and using these kind of social cues to to understand them and understand what they're thinking about and what they want is 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 something we've evolved 
to be good at. It's core to our kind of identity as social beings. So we're so good at it, we don't even really notice we're doing it. Like when you're driving along the road, you're not saying to yourself, oh, I just looked at that person and evaluated that that person is not feeling into the driving test because they don't look like they're going to cross the road for reason A, reason B, reason C. It just, it happens. It happens transparently and effortlessly. Right. It's interesting because I think, you know, the industry has focused on what is problematic about humans as drivers. We get tired, distracted, impaired, angry. You know, we have too little experience when we're young and then we lose our vision and reflexes when we're old. And all these accidents are caused by sort of what's wrong about humans as drivers. It sounds like you're trying to figure out and mimic what's good about humans as drivers. Is that fair? What I always say, yeah, no, it it totally is. And kind of what I always say about that is, how good a driver do you have to be to be able to do it mostly successfully while not paying any attention? I mean, so, you know, humans, humans get distracted and they get angry and they do stupid things. In part, they're a, they believe that, 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 that it's possible to get away with doing these stupid things because the, the sort of general understanding of the world and the general understanding of the task of driving that humans have is so sophisticated. Like you can, you can tune out. You can you can literally not be paying any conscious attention and still mostly get where you're going. That's astounding. It is true. I mean, how many of us, you know, sort of drive along the freeway and suddenly find ourselves exiting and say, "Wow, I don't even remember. <laughs> I don't even remember getting here." Yep. <laughs> so, when we talk, it's interesting because when we talk about the standard for safety with autonomous vehicles, people generally say. An autonomous vehicle has to be as good as a human driver, but it's usually thought of as a statistical problem, you know, accidents per mile or something like this, which means really as good as the group of humans overall with all the defects they may have as a group, which is very different from asking if one autonomous vehicle is as good as one perfect human driver head to head where that driver's, you know, not suffering from these human flaws. How do you think we should think about standards for safety um, measuring against humans? Yeah, I mean, so I think that's the question of what it means to be as good as a human is is actually a super complicated question. And there's sort of this industry has kind of a, you know, it it has this great origin story going back to the, the 2007 Urban Grand Challenge. But if you go back to that, to the, to the Urban Grand Challenge, the, the actual the target for these vehicles, the, the, the stated aim for that Urban Grand Challenge was a vehicle that can get through this course, but really a vehicle that could pass the California driver's test. And on some level, that's kind of a nice goal. It's, you know, it's bounded. It's pretty clear. You can look at the California driver's test, tell you what you need to be able to do. The California driver's test was designed to be taken by humans. So there's a built-in assumption there that everyone taking the California driver's test, uh, you know, can look at somebody else and can say that person's sad, for instance, can, 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 can empathize, can uh, understand that little kids are different from grown-ups. So there's this, a lot of assumptions built into that. And I think similarly, there's a ton of assumptions built into this sort of idea of fewer crashes, right? Which is that, when a human crashes a car, we think about it in a very particular way. So we, we think about blame. We think about what might have been going through their head that led to them, them making the decision or failing to notice the thing that, they, that, that caused this crash. With an autonomous vehicle, what does that mean, right? So if you think about um, when the, 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 the tragic Uber crash happened, one of the things that I think shocked people was the idea that this vehicle could could just straight up not recognize a, a bicyclist in the road, because that's something that wouldn't occur to us as humans. It's something that's so easy for humans that we wouldn't wouldn't kind of get that as really the problem. Right. So I think when you're talking about safety, it can't just be do they you know pass the same tests as humans do. Uh, do they, do they at a, at a kind of, at a average level, uh, cause fewer incidents than humans do? Although, believe me, you know, there's a huge value to them causing less incidents, but it also has to be, 
can they see the world in a way that's meaningfully compute, complete by human standards? When they have an incident, did that incident happen for reasons you know, that are understandable to a human? Is it the vehicle doing something where you could say, oh, I completely understand the decision-making process, and obviously that's not the fault of the vehicle, or is it something where you're saying, wow, that's something that a human would never, ever have done? Because I think if it's the latter case, if these vehicles are doing things that humans would never do, even if the absolute number of incidents is lower, it's going to be very, very hard to, to integrate them into roads and integrate them into, into sort of greater society. Yeah. So if you were crafting a driving test to test autonomous vehicles, what would, what would it look like? I think that that's a good question. So that's a hard question. <laughs> I think it's a question I'm not all the way there on. Um, what I, the way I, I've been sort of thinking about it lately, and this is this is kind of a terrible phrase for it, so I probably shouldn't even say it on a podcast. But there's there's sort of the the human smell test. So <laughs> you take a difficult situation, you put the autonomous, maybe even a situation where you know there's 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 no good outcome. You put the autonomous vehicle through it in simulation. You say to people, well, this is the information it had, and this is the decision-making it, it made. And then, then the question is, when people see that, do they say, I understand that or not, right? So it's, it's a little bit, it's hard to kind of codify it. It's hard to, to make it into something that's, that's, that's strictly empirical without thinking about, like, well, what people do you ask and, and how do we measure? But really, that sort of clearing that bar of explainability and, and again, that definition of what explainability means is going to be tough, but clearing that bar of explainability, to, to my mind, is like the, the, the first step. And then the second step is you can't crash these things. They can't, it's not just that they have to be better than humans, they have to be, you know, starting from a target of perfect and then getting as close as they can. But then also, they need to be explainable. And so I think you, you, need, you need this sort of, you know, vision zero for AVs, and then you also need, when you deviate from that, to, to have that be something that, that is, is comprehensible, is meaningfully human enough or understandably superhuman such that, that people don't see it and go, what on earth happened? This is, you know, this is terrifying. Yeah, that is the problem, is that there may be fewer accidents, but they're going to be different accidents than the ones that humans, you know, would have caused. Um, so you're suggesting we should maybe have some upvoting and downvoting, uh, you know, give people a, a thumbs up <laughs> uh, as you know, to whether I, it was I, understandable. I, I a, <laughs> and it, I don't want to fully crowdsource it, right? If you get whatever, you're going to have like Reddit subthreads about how you <laughs> troll self-driving car companies. And do it. So not not that, right? And that's why it's a little bit, it's a little bit inchoate, but I do think there's something very powerful and very necessary about the, the idea of um, you need to, it needs to be the, what they see and what they understand about the world and, and how they make decisions based on that needs to be meaningfully complete, specifically from a human perspective um, and from the perspective of other drivers. And, and I think on some level, you know, it's not going to be upvoting and downvoting, but it's going to come down to, people knowing it when they see it, really. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned the California driving test. It is interesting. It's not, you know, when you apply to get a California driver's license, it's not just that you take a road test. You also have to pass a written test, and you also have to pass a vision test, right? You have to sit there and mm -hmm. read the eye chart across the wall. So... There are a few other steps there, and maybe there's some uh, equivalent uh, thinking about that for uh, autonomous vehicles. Well, you know, and again, like they definitely should be able to pass the California driver's test. But I, I, you know, the written test, all of the things that are captured in the written test should be there in the planner. Uh, all of the things. The, the vision test, certainly the, the level of acuity and the level of distance vision that that test should, should certainly be a part of the sensor set on these. But it kind of has to be more than that. Like no one, when you do the California driver's test, no one asks you if you can tell that a tree is a tree, right? Mm -hmm. Because 
it's assumed. No one, no one, no one asks if you uh, understand what it means when somebody waves at you, right? It's assumed. And so there are going to be additional pieces um, which, which are really answering sort of parts of the question. It's almost like, like little, little mini chunks of the Turing test, right? So when you're talking about a police officer who's, who's indicating something to these vehicles, do they have the ability to understand that for, for situations X, Y, and Z? When there's a uh, unsignalized crosswalk and there's somebody standing at the crosswalk, do they have an ability to, you know, and this is, this is something we would do, say, okay, well, if you ask 100 people, 98 of them say this person wants to cross the road, is the vehicle also going to make that judgment? Um, so I think there's, there's a, it, it's not that the California driver's test isn't there. It's just that the secondary question of what are really are the, the capabilities of these vehicles is, it has, I think, to, it, an important part to play in how we as an industry, you know, self-regulate or at least kind of, kind of talk about what, what these vehicles are so that people who have to interact with them, people who have to think about integrating them in, the city, in cities can, can understand what they're dealing with and can, can come up with frameworks to, to, to interact with and to deal with them. So let's talk about how your software works. Um, I think you describe the components of what you focus on as intention and awareness. Can you explain each of those and what the software is looking for to try to ascertain uh, intention and awareness? Yeah, so so we define those pretty specifically, actually. So for us, intention means not is this person going to step into the road, you know, one second out, but does this person want to cross the road before the ego vehicle gets there? So it's really a question about what's in their head, what their goals are as it relates to the task of driving. Similarly, awareness for us doesn't mean is this person looking at you? It means does this person know that the, the vehicle is there? And the way that we get at this or the, the, the kind of the, the way to think about these models at a high level, let's take intention. The, imagine that you had your autonomous vehicle and you had um, 100 people in the vehicle with you. You saw a pedestrian. You said, okay, 100 people in the vehicle, let's take a vote. Does that person want to cross the road before I get there? Those people vote on it. Uh, that's going to give some kind of sort of distribution of results. That's, that's really what our models are outputting. So it's, it's, it's the target for our models is the distribution of human responses to, to this question. Um, and so that's what they're, that's what they're doing. That's the, the kind of questions that, that they're answering. Um, that is in, in a lot of ways, and I'll, I'll get to the second part about how we train this in a second, but that is in a lot of ways a much more useful signal than asking, you know, are they going to cross? Because when you're standing by the side of the road and you're a pedestrian, you want to cross the road. Are you going to step into the road now? Or are you going to step into the road a second and a half from now? Well, that's dependent on a lot of things. It's dependent certainly on, you know, this autonomous vehicle that's coming towards you. It's also dependent on vehicles behind them, bicycles, a vehicle that you can see around the corner, but the autonomous vehicle can't, uh, you know, a shiny thing that distracted you, something you just remembered about leaving the, the fridge open. So when you're trying to make these, when you're trying to understand people, when you're trying to, to make decisions about how to act around people, you need to kind of get at these, these, these higher level questions of their goals and their, and their, and their understanding because the lower level questions of kind of when are they going to step in the road are, are rapidly become impossible to answer the sort of when you're more than like a half second away from them. And what are, what are some of the factors then that you're looking at? Is it eyes, is it posture, you know, whether they're carrying a bag? Like what are some of the factors then that you're looking at in the scene that, that go into that analysis? Yeah, so the short answer is it's it's all of those and, and many things besides that we don't even necessarily have um, a good picture on what they are. What we do to train models 
we take um, training data, which is, is, you know, data from sensors from autonomous vehicles. So, for instance, for intention, we would take data from a front-facing camera from a vehicle driving around. We extract from that relevant interactions. So there's a pedestrian that the vehicle drives past that's, that's you know, that, that might or might not want to cross the road. We take each of those relevant interactions, slice it up, into to um, very little, very short slices. We take the slices and then we manipulate them. And this is sort of the key step because we will take those, those, those individual little chunks of driving data and we will make parts of them easier to see, harder to see, more salient, uh, less salient for humans. Then we show those modified versions to, to lots of people ask them kind of different kinds of questions and end up with for each, you know, little chunk of this driving data, hundreds of pieces of information about how people answered these questions we're asking when they were sort of forced to use different visual information. And so is that disassociated? Tri- is, is that, are you saying when you, when you magnify different parts, are you saying that you're asking about each different little piece of the scene independently so that somebody's evaluating it without the benefit of the six other pieces of information in the scene? Right. So and and when we and we do when we do this manipulation by the way we're not doing them we're not saying like okay well let's let's uh only show their left arm let's only show their right arm it's it's kind of much lower level than that it's like all right well let's blur out you know everything except for one dot and see how people do. Oh, it turns out that dot is completely irrelevant. Let's try it somewhere else. So, so we, we, what we get at with this eventually through a pretty laborious data collection process is a characterization for that training sample of really specifically what parts of the training sample uh, on a pixel level are relevant and, uh, and what parts are sort of, you know, mess up people's ability to make these judgments, what parts emphasize it. Um, and then we feed all that to a neural network. Like that's our, our training set that goes into a neural network. And then at the end, what the neural network cares about when it sees a new sample out in the world is whatever is there in the pixel data that, that maps back to, to what was diagnostic for people. Um, and, and that can be these like weird kind of nonlinear kind of subtle features sometimes, and sometimes they can be pretty understandable, but something we didn't pr- predict. So for instance, w- uh, after we started training these models, one of the first things we noticed in our evaluation process is that our intention model cares a lot about bags. So if somebody is holding a bag or has a bag next to them, uh, or has a bag on their shoulder, our model cares a lot about that. And what we eventually figured out um, is that as humans, when you're carrying a bag, the way you're carrying it is very diagnostic over whether, you're, whether you think you're going to start moving soon. So somebody with a bag down by their side, they're going to pick the bag up before they go. But even somebody who has a bag on their shoulder, if they're going to start walking across or think they might, they kind of, they tense up a little bit. They hold it a little bit differently. And so that's a, a feature that our models care about that we didn't predict that they would care about, right? So we didn't, we didn't model bag having, we didn't, we didn't, you know, ask people to rate images with bags and without bags. That just, it came out of this training process with these manipulating images and asking large sets of people about. So some factors were more indicative of intent than others. Exactly. So, so, so some things in these images that, you know, it might be obvious things, like if somebody is taking a big step, then, then, then definitely that's indicative. Our model is going to figure that out. Or it could be these very subtle things, like just a, a little subtle change in the way somebody's holding a bag. Um, and what happens through our training process is that, that we, we can kind of pick up all of those, all of those things, whether they're, obvious or subtle or, 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 you know, localized to one part of the image or just something about the overall cast of the image. Um, 
And then all of that kind of comes into our model, and our model at inference time pays attention to all of that stuff. And what about certainty? Are you weighting the data differently by how certain a human would be when faced with that behavior, like maybe sitting down on the curb and opening a bag is sort of more certain that you're not going to cross than if you're just standing on the curb talking on your phone? Are there different weights or how, how does the algorithm adjust for that? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, without getting too deep into stuff that, that's sort of part of our, our secret sauce, um, things like that come out of the, the training process. So things like that, um, you know, this person people are unsure about, this person people are really sure about, but there's the answer is unsure, things like that. Basically, the way that we collect this data, that's, that's part of the training data. So that gets in kind of automatically. So if a human would have no idea what's going on in the scene, something really crazy is happening, do your algorithms register that uncertainty as like, hey, something crazy is going on here, we don't know what's going on? Yeah, well, exactly. So I'll, I'll give you um, I'll give you an example. In practice, um, if you think about pedestrians, um, they you know there are different classes of pedestrians, and 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 some classes of pedestrians are extremely predictable. Other classes of pedestrians, let's say kids uh, or people who are 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 drunk or otherwise altered, are much much less predictable that the training for our model and then the output of our model reflects that uncertainty. So if you have a vehicle that has our software installed and you come upon a, someone who's you know, stumbling drunk, what our model is gonna say is, well, you know, here's, here's our intention value, but also this is really ambiguous. And that's a very useful signal in and of itself because you know, if someone's definitely gonna cross the road, that's one thing, but if those 100 people in your car would have no idea what to say about that. That's also an extremely important signal for uh, the motion planner in the vehicle. Right. So it seems like your algorithms on the whole operate, you know, to reflect the views of a collective group of humans, like a consensus view. How much like humans are your algorithms? Are you measuring kind of how good they are uh, at mimicking what a human would think of a situation? Yeah, so, so perfect performance for us is that the, the output of our model is indistinguishable from, from human judgment. So it's, it's indistinguishable from what the, the consensus judgment of people would look like. And we're, we're about 85% of the way there. So our, our, our outputs from our models are, are about 85% of the way similar. And, and in practice, that metric's a little funny because it's, you're talking about a distribution and how things fit in a distribution. So there's a little bit of statistical complexity in, in how we calculate that. But in general, probably the way to think about it is that 85% of the, time, percent of the time, the outputs from our model are statistically indistinguishable from the human judgment. And are you only evaluating other humans in the scene or are you also looking at objects or animals we aren't um so we're looking we we focus on humans and you know human operated vehicles right so pedestrians cyclists um a little later this year we'll have a, a a product which works on human driven vehicles animals are tricky because our target is this human ability to judge what's in the head of another human. Um, and when it comes to an animal, we don't really, we'll, we probably will make those judgments, but like if I see a deer, I don't, I don't know what the deer wants. I don't have deer theory of mind. So, so in general, we think that this is really specifically going to work for humans and human-operated vehicles. Right. So you're creating a, a software module, how does it fit into the larger autonomous vehicle software stack? Like where does it sit in the stack? Yeah, so basically we take uh, input from the perception system. Um, 
sensor data or sometimes sensor data that's had a little bit of perception work done on it, like there's the scene's been segmented or something like that. Um, we take that as input, and then the output is this data structure, which captures state of mind, um, which can then be injected at a whole bunch of points in the prediction stack or directly into motion planning, depending on how people have architected their, their overall stack. So if the autonomous vehicle with its own path planning uh, module was planning to keep driving and not stop, and your software were to have an output indicating that a pedestrian was going to cross in front, how does that get reflected in the autonomous vehicle uh, behavior? Yeah, so uh, let me kind of build a more specific scenario around that and then I can kind of talk about it. So for instance, say the autonomous vehicle is heading towards a, uh, a crosswalk, it's an unsignalized crosswalk, and there's a person who is uh, standing still at that crosswalk. If you're using, uh, if your your um, current prediction system is an extended Kalman filter, the extended Kalman filter is going to basically say, well, that person's standing still. So the best estimate we can make is that that person's going to continue to stand still. That would argue for a motion plan where you continue going at the same speed, then, you know, if the person does step into the street, you have to make a, a, a really substantial emergency maneuver, and, and it's, it's no fun for the people in the vehicle, it's no fun for the pedestrian. With our system, for instance, uh, that person who's standing still might have a very high intention score. That very high intention score could be used to modulate the vehicle speed down, <coughs> excuse me, not stop it, but modulate the speed down of the assumption that uh, you may not have to stop, but if you do have to stop, if you've modulated the vehicle speed down, then it will be be less of an emergency stop. You'll be you won't be you know hitting the the deceleration limit. You won't be smacking people's heads into the backs of chairs or anything like that. Um, so that's one example. Another example would kind of go the other way. So if you have a vehicle with an automatic emergency braking system, there's somebody who's standing in the road under many ordinary circumstances, that vehicle uh, was, you know, standing close to the car's path, not necessarily in the car's path. Much of the time those, those systems um, would activate because that's kind of within the tolerances for what they think of a vehicle's path. It could be the case and often is the case that that person is in the road because they're getting into or out of a car and they're really not, they're not going to proceed into the road. So in that case, we would, potentially give a very low intention score. And in, in that case, maybe you would still modulate the vehicle speed down, but you wouldn't activate the automatic emergency braking system. So does your software then work with both ADAS systems as well as level four autonomous vehicles? Yeah, that's right. We've designed it um, to be able to, to integrate well on actually, you know, AEB is I think technically level one. So level one all the way up through level five. And what type of assisted driving features are most helped by understanding human behavior? Is it the the automatic braking or? Um, yeah, without getting, I, I think that in general, and I don't want to be, I, some of this stuff I want to kind of, there are customer relationships that I, I, I so I want to stay pretty broad, but in general, the, the kind of next generation of ADAS features Right now you have, you know, lane keeping, you have uh, highway adaptive cruise control, you have, you have some degree of lane change. The next generation of these ADAS features is going to have um, a lot more functionality that involves dealing with humans. So pedestrian crossing detection or automatic emergency braking or uh, uh, more sophisticated lane change functionality or merging functionality for highways. That kind of next generation, when you get to more human interaction, is when our, our model outputs start to be really helpful. Great. Um, recently, there was a report about a Waymo vehicle successfully navigating through an intersection where the stoplight was out and a police officer was waving cars through. Um, are there cars today that can understand that type of hand signal, or do you think something else was at play there? And then is your software going to be helpful in that type of interaction? 
You know, so I would I would wager that the Waymo vehicle uh, has some ability to, to detect the hand gestures and kind of do action recognition in the research literature. That's a problem that people have been been looking at for a long time and are are not too bad at. Um, and in terms of companies that take this kind of problem very seriously and are very sophisticated about it, I, I certainly think Waymo absolutely checks both of those boxes. Where I think we're helpful is those kinds of interactions, that, that, that kind of interaction where a light is out and you have a, a police officer wave, waving people through, it, it's actually relatively straightforward as far as human social interactions go. Uh, where we would help is in situations where the behavior is, is still just as easily read by humans but doesn't map so kind of tightly to a, 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 a characteristic behavior. So you have uh, a police officer standing working at a construction site and, and a car comes by and they're annoyed at the car, but they're not exactly telling the stock ripper waving them through or they're, they, they decide they need to cross in front of the car and are assuming the car's gonna stop. So there's kind of, there's subtleties to this behavior that above and beyond just a, a cop who's really signaling traffic. And I think when you get to those subtleties, and, and I think in practice, those subtleties form the bulk of human inter- interactions on the road. That's, that's when the, the generalization performance and the, um, the, the, I guess, subtlety of inference that you get with our kind of approach becomes, becomes the, the solution you need to go to. There was also a report recently of a study that showed autonomous vehicles not recognizing humans with darker colored skin as pedestrians as often as white people. Are you familiar with that? Have you, have you yeah. seen anything like that? How would you account for that to avoid that type of problem? So it doesn't surprise me, frankly. Um, coming from the, the machine learning world, data set bias is an enormous problem. Um, I think in terms of that... I, I, I have no doubt that that's, I mean, I, I, I read the study and it certainly does show what it purports to show. And what it purports to show is that camera-based pedestrian detection systems uh, do uh, worse on, on, on non-white pedestrians. The couple things about that, I would say, first of all, pedestrian, uh, camera-based pedestrian detection systems don't do that great on anybody. So even on um, even for for white pedestrians, I don't think that any vehicle out there now is or should be solely relying on camera-based detections for for um, pedestrian detection. Certainly, any vehicle that has a lidar on it, they're going to be doing sensor fusion with lidar and camera. That's going to massively reduce the gap because lidar isn't going to have these kinds of problems. Um, and I think as the camera-based systems get better, there's definitely a lot of work to be done to narrow the gap. But in terms of the, the practical implications, like fundamentally there's, there's a long way to go before camera-based pedestrian detection is going to be anyone's sole or, or primary solution to, to detecting people out in the road. So looking broadly at the autonomous vehicle landscape, you know, some people feel that the industry is taking longer to develop level four vehicles than perhaps was anticipated. From a software perspective, what do you think the holdup is in terms of getting level four vehicles safely deployed, say, in a, a ride service context? So I think one of the things about this industry that is that is underrecognized is first of all the astounding amount of progress that's been made like mm-hmm. from 2007 to now that we've been able to to get these vehicles to the level of performance they're at is just a just a stunning achievement it's a you know an engineering feat that i i think has 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 very few parallels in 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 other certainly in other commercial enterprises Part of the reason it's so amazing is that this is a really, really, really hard problem. This is this is one of the just from a perspective, perception perspective, from a behavioral planning perspective, even from a controls perspective and a compute perspective. This is uh, an incredibly difficult series of engineering problems. 
I think one of the things that's happening now, there's, um, there's an adage in, in, uh, in software engineering, you know, that the first uh, 90% of the, of the work takes 90% of the time, and then the last 10% of the work takes 90% of the time. <laughs> so, so I think what's happening now is that as um, the people who are making and, and deploying these vehicles have gotten closer and closer, the problems that remain are the ones that are the really hard problems and the ones where the approaches that are sort of the standard approaches um, have not borne fruit or, or, or are sort of not up to the task. Um, for us, we feel like, you know, understanding humans is, is, is the biggest one of those. That's, that's, that's kind of the, 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 the largest remaining challenge for these vehicles because humans are so good at it. And, you know, so what we'd like to do is kind of as these, vehicle makers that have surmounted so many engineering challenges reach this this last 10% and and kind of start to face up to what an enormous problem understanding people in the world is we can say well, look we have we have a solution that 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 solves the hardest parts of that for you right so are you partnering with OEMs or tier 1s or other companies uh, with respect to the software module that you're offering yeah, so I, I don't, I can't really name names, but we have commercial relationships with OEMs and tier ones and mobility startups. Uh, so we're, we're working with, you know, people doing level four and five in constrained environments, also with tier ones doing, doing ADAS products, uh, also with OEMs who are kind of, you know, doing, doing both of those things and thinking about self-driving for production. So is your software being used in any of the test cars on the road today? Uh, it's implemented in test cars. It's, it's, it's deployed in people's autonomous stacks. Um, I would not want people to assume that if they see a vehicle, that that, that vehicle is, is using our software for infants related to its motion planning right now. Um, but, but that, that, uh, will increasingly be the case i would say i would say this year that it's 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 actually deployed in these vehicles as they're driving around so if if it's deployed in vehicles and even if it's perhaps not directly connected into their path planning are you able as a company to get some feedback as to how it's working yeah absolutely i mean and that's the real value so the the kind of selling into these companies for any vendor is an, uh, you know, extremely lengthy process. Um, and, and certainly we're no different. So what we're, what we're able to do with these partnerships is, is first of all, you know, this is a customer relationship. They, they are, they're certainly paying us to provide them with things, but also we're getting a much better understanding of, uh, specifically what the, the safety and compliance and performance criteria are for their specific use cases. Great. And what do you see uh, the goals for the company in the next couple of years, 2019, 2020? What is the company hoping to accomplish? So I think really to, um, you know, hit the marks that we need to, to, to show the value for our customers and, and be uh, well along the path to production deployments. Great. Final question. Uh, you recently joined the PAVE Coalition, uh, which I think stands for Partners for Automated Vehicle Education. Why did you join and mm -hmm. what do you see are the biggest challenges for autonomous vehicle education? So I, I think we joined because we feel like we have something to say about how build trust for these vehicles and 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 we were talking about this earlier in, in the call when you sort of talk about the bars that these vehicles need to clear to be accepted and to 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 be uh sort of comfortable for both people in them and people who interact with them from from outside the vehicle the questions of explainability and the questions of uh uh to what degree they are like and diverge from humans and and how to think about those things i think is something where we feel like we can usefully contribute to that discussion and and usefully contribute to this kind of process of building building trust and confidence in these vehicles great well thanks so much for coming on the podcast this was a really interesting discussion i appreciate you taking the time 
You're welcome. And, and thank you so much for having me. All right. Take care. Thanks again to Sam for joining us. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can find the show notes for this episode and all of our episodes on our Medium publication called Smarter Cars. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.